0: You know, honestly, in my, my own recovery from an eating disorder did not happen in a therapy room. I think, you know, I went to a million therapists and a million, you know, did some residential treatment, but it happened in like a sweat lodges. It happened on Orcas Island singing, you know, in singing retreats. It happened in my own yoga practice. It happened by going to travel and see Thich Nhat Hanh. like that, that is my recovery history. So what is actually going on there? That also could be showing up in a 12-step room or could be showing up in a therapy room. And those are the core processes.
1: That was Diana Hill, and this is Mentally Flexible. Welcome to Mentally Flexible, where we have meaningful conversations to help you build mental flexibility. I'm Tom Parks, I'm a licensed psychotherapist, and in each episode, I'll be talking to people who inspire me most on topics related to psychology, mental health, and creativity. My hope is that through these conversations, you'll better understand yourself, others, and the world around you. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Oh, in time. My guest today is Dr. Diana Hill. This is my first return guest, and what a great person to have for the first time. Dr. Diana Hill is a clinical psychologist and co-author of ACT Daily Journal, Get Unstuck and Live Fully with Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. She's also the host of a new podcast, Your Life in Process, and she offers regular teachings and compassion and ACT through Inside LA and Mindful Heart programs and through Instagram. Um, I'm sure many of you already know her if you listened to the last episode or if you're a fan of Psychologists Off the Clock, which she was a part of for many years. Um, in this episode, we explore Diana's recent shift away from Psychologists Off the Clock and into her new podcast, Your Life in Process, being able to hold different perspectives on the world and others, the pitfalls of constantly striving, the how technology can get in the way of being in the present moment common processes that promote human flourishing, the value and challenges of humility, and we end by Diana helping me explore how to navigate being more open publicly. Uh, This was a great conversation. I say that about many people, but I mean, I really love this one. It was special in the way that Diana was able to help me understand my story and how I want to share that with others through this medium. Uh, haven't figured it out yet, but I guess we'll see how that process unfolds. Uh, thank you again, Diana. And everybody, please go check out her new podcast, Your Life in Process. I tell her in the beginning of the episode um, how much I like the way that she has it set up and the energy she's putting into it, and I truly mean it, so go check it out. Links will be in the show notes. And if you want to support the podcast, the best way is just to keep listening, share with a friend, subscribe, or leave a review. I really appreciate you coming back and listening. All right, everyone. Well, let's get into the conversation with Dr. Diana Hill. The intros I sort of just let start however feel natural starts, so I'm not too meticulous with needing things to have a very defined beginning and ending, which, for better or for worse.
0: (laughs) It's good for me, because I am meticulous about that. I'm trying to be less meticulous about that, so that's good.
1: Yeah, well, actually, uh, in preparation for this, I was checking out your new podcast, Your Life in Process, and I, I really liked the way you did it. I listened to the two that you did. Just by yourself, the solo episodes. And I love the way you designed it because it seems, it's very, it seems like you obviously prepared a lot for that and it's structured, but it's very organic, but also really easy to follow and to take pull things from it. So I guess I'm just giving you a compliment on your new podcast.
0: Thank you. Well, you know, honestly, I learn a lot from you and your podcast and your, you know, obviously the first thing that strikes me is just how, um, at ease you are. And you just let yourself be yourself and let whatever comes up in the moment show up. And the beauty of your music also, I think I, I love that about your podcast. And so I, I, you know, the first time you talked with me, I I learned a lot from you about maybe how I want to be doing things differently in my offerings. And oftentimes I think we were talking about chanting earlier. And one of the chants that I often do is to to the guru, right? And so the guru is the goo part takes you out of the dark, and the ru part is the light, brings you into the light. And our gurus are our teachers, our inner teachers and our outward teachers, and and we're just constantly encountering encountering these teachers along the way. And so you've been one of them for me in uh, podcasting world.
1: Wow, that's I don't even know how to. Thank You're my
0: guru. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> I have a lot of gurus, though some of them are my enemies too. So watch out, you know. Anyone can be a guru.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, there's sort of a a way to look at life and everybody you interact with as an opportunity to learn something from that interaction or from that person or that circumstance.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure.
1: So obviously, you since last time we talked have been doing a lot of reflecting and pivoting and how you want to approach presenting your work to the world. And you've created a new medium of your podcast. So what's that? Tell me a little bit more about that journey.
0: Um, it's, it's been a little excruciating and terrifying and <laughs> trusting the process, I guess. Uh, you know, I've been on Psychologist Off the Clock for five years so people get a dissertation in that amount of time, right? It's, it's a big chunk of my life. When, when I started, my babies were babies, and now they're like preteens. So mm-hmm. there's been a lot of growing up, and letting go of that and the, um, the massive audience that we had compiled, right, was a very hard thing to do. And um, I had my own, I, you know, I talk a lot about striving and my own struggles, my frenemy of striving, That in some ways it's done well for me in the world. And then it also pummels me on a repeated basis. And so it made me kind of look at my own striving right in the head and, and my own reasons why I want to do this, which was and has been an inner knowing for a while, which is I want to be able to talk more directly with people and I want it to be more intimate and I want to show up more fully as, as myself. And that's sometimes a bit disorganized. And sometimes I'm like talking about chanting in one minute and you know science in the next, but, uh, I need that creative freedom.
1: Hmm. Yeah. it's uh, that seems to be a common, uh, Dilemma or challenge that people run into, like even when I had Louise Hayes on, like when we go off into some of these like spiritual ends and then her wanting to like make sure she balances out it things from a scientific point of view. And I feel that same sort of push and pull because I'm really interested in looking at the mystery of the world, but also really care about seeing things, you know, from an evidence based or scientific lens and that honoring both of those perspectives on um, what we do, on the work that we do, and how we live our lives can be challenging sometimes.
0: I think it can be challenging, especially when we feel like we need to choose,
1: mm-hmm.
0: you know, or we need to always defend the mystery with the science, or we always need to balance out the science with the mystery. And one of the things, I was actually just on this, um, it was kind of this crazy retreat. I, I can't even describe it. It was in Costa Rica, and some of the people that were there were just, Phenomenal, But one of the um, people that were there was Dan Siegel, and he was talking about E.O. Wilson's work on concilience. I guess this is what his next book is all about, Dan Siegel's next book, is about the conciliatory model. And so E.O. Wilson was, um, he's passed now, but he was a, um, he studied ants. (laughs) And uh, a biologist that studied ants. And he came up with this concept of concilience, which is the idea that, you know, sort of the, Indian proverb of the elephant, the many different parts of the elephant. And what Dan has done is he's looked at now sort of indigenous cultures. He's looked at um, physics. He's looked at neuroscience. He's looked at attachment theory. And he's trying to kind of step back and look at at a conciliatory view, one that says all of these are true you know, the anthropologists are in the basement and have no funding and the neuroscientists are on the the floor with the view because we think that what they're teaching is more important than what the anthropologists are teaching. But actually they both have such important perspectives on different parts of this elephant. And so Mm -hmm. for me, that's sort of where I'm kind of, where I kind of want to go is not having to choose anymore, but then sometimes say, okay, sometimes I can see this part of this elephant and this resonates with me. And sometimes I can see this part and then there's a whole slew of other parts that I don't even know are out there. And I'm curious and learning curious to learn more, but can we step back and take a conciliatory view? And what does that really look like? I think process-based approaches are headed there, but it's not just process-based approaches. It's, you know, all sorts of approaches that are headed there, hopefully.
1: Mm. Yeah. And that applies to a, a many different levels of our experience to even allow us to have conflicting ways that we view people in our lives or view ourselves. And we can get, we can create this unnecessary tension of having like one perspective, be the right one. And it doesn't allow us to fully explore and be open to other ways of viewing ourselves and the world and other people.
0: Sure. Especially when our threat system is activated, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, especially when we feel as we have You know for many of us uh, you know for a number of years been impacted by the ever-changing pandemic and the you know political system and the you know I got to take my my side is right and hold on to it and you know it's important I think be able to have perspective on your own self on your own mind and then be able to take perspective on another person's mind and their self and then look at the whole context and it's really hard to do that when we feel threatened And we feel, um, or when we feel like we're trying, going back to striving, when we feel like we're trying to grab onto something Mm -hmm. and that's, what's true for me of like, when I get into that striving mode of trying to whatever self promote my ego or my thing or my podcast or whatever, I can lose track of the conciliatory view. I can lose track of the many perspectives and, um, you know, we could all, we can all work on that.
1: I think. Yeah, that uh, being mindful of and holding ourselves accountable for that uh, automatic striving is something that resonates with me too. That I've had to work on and be flexible with, and just even with the podcast, I you know I started off doing this every week and putting in so much energy, finding the, the right guests or good guests, and spending a ton of time preparing. Not that I don't prepare at all now, but you know to give myself. It, I guess I just had to realize that that comes at a cost because all the time I'm putting towards that takes away from other things, and uh, it's been really nice to. And I guess another thing I'm working on a lot is not to have it be either or because then the the part of me that's like, oh, I can't I can't manage this. I just have to stop doing it. And it's like it's okay to just do it when you do it. You could do it once a month or once every six weeks and or do it twice in a month. Like there's no rules on it, but um, yeah, that. I default to that striving state too. And it's something I've been working on as well.
0: Yeah. And it's not your fault that you default to that. We're all fed it (laughs) as children in school. I mean, as soon as we're given a grade, I was just thinking about my kids there. One of them is finishing up sixth grade and he's going to be entering into junior high. And this kid has never been graded. Hmm. He's never received a grade uh, either because we've been homeschooling him or because he's in a school that we chose that, does not give grades. Hmm. And I just sort of thought about that because he's like this super self motivated kid that is like, has a lot of intrinsic motivation, hard worker in some ways too hard on himself, but he's never received a grade. So what's that about? Right. And for those of us that were graded in many different ways, whether it's the ABCD, or that you look like this, or you don't look that like that, um, we've caught the bug of striving and it becomes, at least for me, it becomes this sort of like, as soon as I get to that thing, I'm hungry for the next thing. I don't actually feel the deep satisfaction or the groundedness of reaching something like, wow, yeah. you started a podcast you had that interview, like on on POC, it would always be that, like, like, as soon as I would be done with the interview, it would be like, okay, what's the next one?
2: Mm.
0: And each one of those conversations profoundly would change me. They'd impact Mm. me. I think about them. I mean, when you prepare for these things, or if you're talking with a guest, you start thinking about them. Like I was thinking about you this morning. I'm on my run. I'm thinking about you. So you're already in my life and your, your, your trail will continue in my life. And it, you know, we deserve to like, take time with that. Mm. Like that, that's something that's important to be with Raz, as opposed to the grade, which lends us to what's the next grade.
1: Mm. So yes. it's
0: interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Or even just, yeah, that, that idea of letting our experience settle in and move through us. And it, it's not something that Naturally happens if you don't give it the space. If we're always moving on to the next thing, we sort of have these experiences that are important or mean something. And then you just move on to the next one. And it's like this little flash in our lives. And even when we work with clients, right, it's some of the best things are just letting things sit and really run through somebody and giving space to that instead of there being this kind of like compulsive, let's talk about the next thing mentality.
0: You know, we were talking about this hat that I'm wearing earlier. And I was saying how I sit out on my porch with clients. And I wear it and they sit inside and the doors are open and, um, it's like the safest way that I can see people in in person. And I have the privilege of being in a place that's like average temperature 65 to 70 year round. But one of the things about this hat in particular is that it attracts hummingbirds. (laughs) I think they like the purple. (laughs) (laughs) And so I'm wearing this purple hat and I'll be in session with a client. And then whatever it is that we're talking about, and then this hummingbird will come by and like circle around my head and I I can't see it, but I can hear it. That's that Mm. that hum of a hummingbird. And it's almost like a, it's a vibration in addition Mm. to a sound. Well, I guess Mm. sound is vibration. You know more about this than I do, but it's a Mm. vibration of their little wings hovering over my head. And inevitably the client will just pause and be like, there's a hummingbird above your head. Mm (laughs) And all of a sudden we zoom out from like, whatever it is we were in our heads about and land into, yeah, that's pretty amazing.
1: Yes. Yeah. Because there's two, there's two ways you can respond to that moment. It can be the mind wants to see that as like an interruption or an intrusion on what it was just doing, or there's a way to sort of step back and let that be the new moment and really settle into that. And that's, um. And that can be really, it can be a really beautiful experience.
0: Yeah. And it's really one of those, you know, sort of those core processes that we benefit from engaging in more of I think being present, especially being present with another human and that so much of our society and culture is stealing from us because mm-hmm. the hummingbird over my head is also the moment in the kitchen when I'm with my partner, and he's sharing about something from his day and I'm checking my phone.
2: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: it's like there's the hummingbird right in front of me as my partner, which he's got something to share and I'm checked out. Right. Or mm-hmm. I think my phone is something that's more important than the hummingbird mm-hmm. moment. And, you know, I, it's hard. It's just it, I think it's hard to um, train that in ourselves or remember that the the preciousness of the present moment. And it's all stuff that like, you know, we walk the walk of like, you know, mindfulness is good for you, but actually being mindful of being present is not always an easy thing to do.
1: Yeah. Do you ever think about just getting rid of the phone? (laughs) Like I I guess this is maybe a question I'm throwing out for everyone to consider. It's something that I, you know, when we're talking about, I think you and I both and many people really authentically connect with how important just like being present and being still and having space in your life to appreciate things, how, yeah, how important that is. And we all have these things near us that not that we can't get into that space with it around, but it's just makes it so, so much harder. And sometimes I'm like, I'm playing real competing games here. And sometimes I consider like making a change with that. Do you ever think about that?
0: Oh, yeah. I think about wanting to throw my phone out the window. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I had a conversation with Anna Lemke. She's a Stanford psychiatrist who studies dopamine. She's, she's the addictions, whatever, the chief of the addiction center at Stanford or whatever. But um, she wrote this book called Dopamine Nation. And she was talking about her kids and how she didn't wire her house for Internet until her kids were in high school. And she didn't mm. let her kid have a phone in high school. And what she basically said was, because the phone will always win. Mm. Your ki- you know, kids need to learn how to be present in a conversation with another person. They need to learn how to be in their bodies. They need to learn how to be in nature. They need to you know learn how to emotion regulate. All these different tasks of our childhood, but the phone will always win. And so it it will crowd out. It's sort of like an invasive species. You know, there's these hillsides of Santa Barbara that are covered in this beautiful yellow mustard grass that's not native to the land here. And although it's beautiful and eye-catching, it's crowding out the native plants, Mm. right? And so in a lot of ways, I, yeah, I think about that. I would love that. And when I ask clients if you look back over the course of your day, a common question I'll ask people is what was the most meaningful moment of your day? Like if you go to bed at night and you say, what was the most meaningful moment of today? Most often it will not be a moment that you had on your phone. <laughs> yeah. It'll be like these random things will show up. People, they'll say things like it was when I was playing pickleball or it was that time where I just like walked into the garden and like, you know, kind of dug around a little bit or is when my kid came home from school and I, you know, talked to him about their spelling test. You know, these sort of like things that we think are just, you know, sort of dispensable in life, but actually are the most important aspects of a life. And
2: mm-hmm.
0: when we look at, some, you know, the, the passing of Thich Nhat Hanh obviously has had a very profound impact on our, you know, I, on our culture, on profound personal impact on me and a reminder of his teachings of uh, th- these very simple teachings that are getting crowded out by this non-native species called our hmm. phones
1: <laughs> hmm. yeah that resonates it's and it's such a um yeah it's such a constant battle i mean i don't know if battle's the right word but it's just a constant thing to have to be mindful of and resist and change the way I relate to it. And it's so it's, I don't know. I don't know if we want, how much we want to go down this rabbit hole, but yeah, I guess it makes me really think about why I have it. (laughs) Why Mm -hmm. do I have this thing that so clearly goes against the things that are important to me?
0: One of the things that I'll do in workshops with clients or with them I'll just do in workshops is have people look at their phone and notice two things, notice the, the sort of the urge of the patterning of the finger movement. Like, Mm. what do you, what do you go to first? (laughs) (laughs) It's 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 a, it's a, it's like a well-worn machine. It's like, you know, it's like your side of the bed where like, it kind of sinks down a little bit where your butt's been like sleeping in it too long, right? <laughs> <laughs> like fall into that spot again, right? And and then the other thing that I'll have people do is notice, like, go through app by app and notice the feeling state that you have when you hmm. look at that app.
2: Hmm.
0: And what is your feeling state when you look at Instagram? Just the little red thing with the little camera in it. What what is your feeling state when you look at the New York Times? What happens to hmm. you? And so do we get rid of it? And, you know, yeah, I, I, love, I go on retreats, you know, on a regular basis and I love to go on retreats cause it's like getting rid of my phone and, you know, coming back to my practice and all of that. But the world that I live in is not that. And yeah. can I become more conscious in, in this world with the use of this thing? And then also notice when I'm hooked and use my psychological flexibility skills with that. Um, yeah. it's, it's kind of a tall order, but I don't think we're going to get rid of phones anytime soon.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, how have you, uh, if you're willing to talk about it, like how, I know you're a parent, how have you approached that as a parent, the, it, the relationship between technology and your kids and.
0: Um, well, you know, as, as I said, I, I wish that I could throw my phone out the window. I feel that way about video games, and um, and I've gotten a real schooling around that because one day when my son um, we were he was like many parents kids kids technology use just really increased during the pandemic, and in some ways, you know, we were using technology to babysit our kids. Like I have a client, I'm going to look the other way when my kids, you know, being quiet in the back of the house. <laughs> Mm. You know, it's like, wow, thank goodness for technology. Like these are, you know, hard times to get through. But um one one evening, one one evening we were at the dinner table, and um you know, one thing that I'm very consistent with is we have family dinner. It's something that like I hold on to for dear life. And I wanted to bring up technology use with my with my son and, and his video game use, in particular with Minecraft. And he said, Mom, every time we start talking about this topic, I just, I can't stand it. I just want to run away.
2: Hmm.
0: And my, so we kind of paused on that and looked at that and it's because I want to take it away from him and he knows that. And so instead of me going into that space, I started asking him about it. I hmm. was like, what, what is it that, you know, he said, cause you want to take it away from me. I said, what is it that you're afraid that I'm going to take away. And why is that important to you? And we dug under it and dug under and dug under it. And when it came down to was during a time where he has not been able to see his friends as much in the same way that he used to. Even with like the opening up, you know, kind of opening up. It's just not the same for kids. This was a way that he could connect with his friends. And mm. a way that he could play. He also really liked in Minecraft, like, Designing things and um, like the the sort of creativity and problem solving, and he really enjoys that, so mm-hmm. we kind of dug under it and found like okay, my kid really values problem solving and creativity and he really values uh, human connection and this is the form in which he's getting it mm-hmm. and when I was able to see it through that lens as opposed to I would like to take your Minecraft and throw it out the window so that you go climb a tree mm-hmm. it really Tenderized me around this yeah. concept of Minecraft, and then I can have conversations with him about where is the point of diminishing returns. Like, is there a point where it no longer feels connecting, or
1: mm. where you
0: don't feel like you know it doesn't feel as nutritious to you in some way or another? From more of, a, I guess, the motivational interviewing, honestly, stance. Um, so that's my relationship with the stuff and kids. And I don't know. I mean. I wish, you know, we all, you know, my parents wish that I grew up in a different world, grew up in the world that they lived in. Right. And so Mm -hmm. there's, you know, kind of like aging myself and and not getting with the times on this, but we do need to look at what are the values underneath it and how to help people pursue those values.
1: Wow. I, I love how I love getting to sort of build the movie of you having that conversation with your son like that. That's really cool that you can have conversations like that. I mean, maybe this is... Uh, I guess I admire that because I don't have kids and I want them. And it seems really cool to know there's people like you that really value getting inside of their kids' world and understanding what things mean to them and having meaningful conversations with them and not just telling them what they can or can't do. And that's that's awesome. I mean, has that been a something you've always been able to do? Is it a process of... Is that a process that's developing?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a process that's developing because otherwise I know I work with teens a lot and I know I'm going to get shut out if I don't mm-hmm. do it. And I love mm-hmm. him too much. I don't want him to shut me out, even though he might. But, yeah, we can think about that in relationship to kids if you're a parent. But you can think about that same process in relationship to somebody that if you really believe in being vaccinated and you're with somebody that doesn't believe in being vaccinated, Mm. if you really believe in, you know, working on climate change and you're with someone who doesn't believe in that. Mm. Right. Or vice versa. I'm speaking that in that way, because that's the political, you know, lean that I have, but honestly underneath, um, are the things that we really want to defend, And the things that we're afraid are going to be taken away from us are our values. And Mm. when we can see people's values and also see the vulnerability in those values, like the vulnerability of my son saying, like, when you talk about this, I feel like you're going to take my friends away from me, mom, you know, Mm. Um, if we could see that in someone with a different view than us, then we can operate, I think, from a place of much like deeper compassion and also recognizing um that we are we are more the same than we are different, mm-hmm. and I think that our world needs a little bit more of that right now, so if I can start with my kids, then maybe that will you know spread
1: hopefully <laughs> yeah well your your kid will also learn like get see that that's being modeled for him, and that he'll hopefully communicate with other people that way and I mean, that's how change really has to happen, right? It's from an individual spreading it out and really walking the walk themselves. And then it kind of spreads to other people. And um, mm-hmm. what are you, what are you most interested in, like teaching these days or talking about or supporting clients with like what, uh, what areas energize you the most these days?
0: Mm. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm excited about process-based approaches, I think that um, Steve Hayes is onto something here where he's sort of like, let's end the therapy wars of like, you know, evidence-based is better than non-evidence-based and, you know, and, and actually start to look at what are the core processes of human flourishing. He did, he did this, you know, he's kind of working on this massive um, research study where that he, um, Steve Hayes, Stephen Hoffman, and Joseph Sarochi have looked at, it's been like, like 55,000 studies to mm-hmm. see what are the core components that, and the processes that lead to change in people's lives. And then they were able to boil it down. Sure that the six act processes are part of that, but it's, you know, they kind of came up with, you started with like sort of 30 and they're looking at things like it's, it's self-efficacy. It's the belief that you can change. It's hope. It's um, acceptance. It's how you relate to your thoughts, whether that that's, Diffusion of reframing your thoughts or your ability to kind of like, I mean, diffusion of stepping back from your thoughts or reframing your thoughts, that both of these are beneficial, right? Um, it's also about things like our biology and mm-hmm. our um, uh, how we're sleeping, how we're eating, how we're moving. And that's something that I have deeply believed in for such a long time of like, you know, honestly, my, my own recovery from an eating disorder did not ha- happen in a therapy room. I think you know, I went to a million therapists and a million, you know, did some residential treatment, but it happened in like a sweat lodges. It happened on Orcas Island singing, you know, and singing retreats. It happened um, in my own yoga practice. It happened by going to travel and see Thich Nhat Hanh. Like that, that is my recovery history. So what is actually going on there that also could be showing up in a 12-step room or could be showing up in a therapy room? And those are the core processes. So I get excited about that um and seeing that reflected in the teachers that I follow. So people like Judy, um, Trudy Goodman, Jack Hornfield, um, Alyssa Apple, people that are doing um Sony Renee Taylor, people that are that are taking different angles on this same elephant.
1: Mm, that's sort of like with when I've gotten into act and you're able to see these uh core processes. It helps you see all these different therapy models in a new way and see how much there's these common factors are spread throughout all of them while people are, well, there's this tendency to like treat them as different things that are competing and argue over which one's better. And then you can sort of distill them down and see that a lot of these have very similar common denominators in them all. And it changes the way you view view things.
0: Yeah. And then it makes you feel like not so torn up inside about having to, you know, it, it kind of also trusting, I think for me as a the therapist, learning to trust also like my own sort of divine wisdom inside, you know, like trusting my own body, trusting the processes that are showing up for me in the room, as opposed to always kind of thinking I need to sit down and teach some handout or some protocol or, and then chronically feeling like I'm not doing it right.
1: <laughs> mm. Yes yes
0: that doesn't feel good
1: yes yeah when you can have like a very deep knowing that being really present and open with another person and really listening and really holding space for all of the the range of their emotions and helping them notice what their thoughts are that are showing up when you're sort of grounded and knowing that that's something important that you're doing it eases some of that uh like anxiety that shows up about doing the right thing or what like yeah, what you have to do because there's this trust in the moment more. Mm
0: -hmm. And I have a label for it now. I have a, you know, a theory, a conceptualization. And I think that also helps, you know, having an understanding of, um, I guess it's the, it's the flexibility of the model, but also having a model is helpful for me. I like
1: models. Yeah. Yeah. That work that's that Steve Hayes is doing with Stefan Hoffman is like, uh, he, he went over it a bunch in, an one of his trainings, I did act immersion. And it's so fascinating that there's people doing this stuff. Like half of it goes over my head, but half of it gets in. And it's, I think that's just so cool that they're out there collecting all this data and it's, it's really important.
0: Yeah. And then I, and then I always like flip that and say, and it's already, it's already there too. You know, um, when I was, so I, Jack Cornfield, who I mentioned, is um, I think just an incredible teacher. And one of the things when I was at, I was on a um, retreat with him once, and um, someone came up to to give him some criticism, and uh, was critiquing him about something. And what was fascinating was to see. Okay, we're all like on the edge of our seats. Like, what is how is Jack Cornfield, who is sort of the master of loving awareness, like his whole, all of his teachings are about being present with loving awareness Mm. and the power of that. How is he going to handle someone who is, you know, critiquing him and criticizing him and actually kind of almost like, kind of like borderline insulting him. And And, what what was fascinating to me was seeing how in the moment he responded with So much loving awareness, but by the end of the conversation with this woman, she was feeling like strengthened in her own ability to be loving and aware, you know, Mm. and, and so I think there's like, there's also the practice of this, like, how, how are we translating these principles into every interaction. And when you practice something a lot, like sort of like that side of your bed that you've had this well-worn, you know, bottom in, when you practice something a lot, you actually, it becomes more automatic. And Mm -hmm. that's what I'm also sort of interested in is is sort of boiling it down, kind of simplifying things a little bit. So I know what to practice and I know what practices will have the biggest impact, um, whether that's the, you know, what I'm teaching through the podcast or interacting with my kids or with my partner or in relationship to myself, um, or with my clients.
1: Mm. What are some of those reliable practices that help make some movement in these areas that you see as important?
0: Um, I think one practice is that shows up more and more is, um, Humility, <laughs> mm. which kind of goes with compassion, I think a little bit, like the common human. I think co- I think of common humanity as humility, seeing that we're mm. kind of like all just sort of messing up, right? And um, and when I when I practice more humility of just saying, I struggle to, We all struggle. We're doing the best we can in the circumstances that we're in, right? Um, I think it helps just sort of take us off of our sort of silos and our sort of battling for self-righteousness into just Mm. being together in it. So Mm. that's one practice that, um, and I think actually in some ways starting a new podcast and starting from from zero again was like a good practice in humility. Like here I am, it's back to my mom and my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law <laughs> wrote the first review.
1: <laughs> I think I wrote it. <laughs> yeah. She,
0: yeah. Phyllis. She's yeah. um she's a big fan.
1: Yeah. It's uh that one can be hard. I mean, that's been a huge that's been a huge part of my own personal growth and relationship is like how recognizing how easily I can be triggered into defensiveness and self-righteousness and to I can't even count the number of times over the past year I've had to come back and oh, like acknowledge it and own up and try to just like you know do an exorcism on that version of myself that I just was with some compassion and um, that's that can be really hard <laughs> to do.
0: Yeah. You know, I was, you know, I, I had a um, conversation, I'm not going to give too much detailed information, but I had a, I was having a conversation with a client that struggles, um, with an eating disorder. And, um, I started going into this long explanation of how, when women menstruate, their hormonal system is, you know, a certain way and that you need fat because estrogen is a fat hormone and, it's the fat that produces the estrogen, which will allow you to menstruate and evolutionarily your body will start menstruating. And I kind of went to this whole thing on, on uh, women who menstruate. And this client looked at me and I could just tell that they were checking out. Mm-hmm. And then I could also tell that I was like going into like explanation mode. Yes. Uh, but I kept on explaining because I felt like I could the more I could tell that they were checking out, the more I went to explaining <laughs> to seem <seeing laughs> expert. Like I, and then all of a sudden I'm talking about some things that I really kind of don't know at this point. I'm like, Hey, wait, Mm -hmm. you know, how much do I really know about this estrogen or hormone thing? (laughs) I'm like checking myself. And at some point I was like onto like cervical mucus. I was like, Hey, wait, how, how have I gotten this far? And they look at me and they say, you know, I want to remind you that, um, I'm non-binary. And when you say women who menstruate, it really kind of like, it didn't settle well with me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, that was humility, right? Like that was like, so then I got to spend the rest of the session actually talking about that interaction and what happened between us and how my biases and my not seeing and my kind of feeling it in my body that I was missing the point, but keep on steamrolling forward was so harmful and Mm. how that is a a, a micro experience of what this person experiences in our society. Right. Um, Mm. There are people that identify as men who menstruate.
2: Right.
0: Right there are, you know, how this person wants to be identified as they, she. And so that's where I feel like humility is like, I just, there's so much that I need to be more humble about that. I don't even know that I'm not being humble about, but we have to be willing to enter into. And like, I wish that, and if I could go back, I would catch my body signaling a little bit earlier on in that conversation that I'm going astray and pause and be with the person as opposed to getting on to the neuroendocrine system, which I don't know
1: a ton about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's not like in that story, which thank you for sharing. It sounds like the critical choice point in there is when that client brings this into awareness, the it's so easy to fall into like defensiveness or wanting to double down or to pretend like you're being, like having humility and hearing them out while really you're sort of like still holding on to your secret stash of defensiveness. And those moments are happening all the time. And with clients, I find that it's so much easier to sort of really like go into the full humility and, but yeah, maybe outside of sessions, it's even harder for me, but I'm sort of rambling here, but I yeah, guess it's no, just like I, yeah. those choice points can be difficult.
0: I'm not good at humility. I'm learning this. <laughs> <laughs> this is not, this is not what, and I will say I have like in, in honoring Paul Gilbert, where it's like, it's not your fault, but it is your responsibility. Yeah. I will say it's not my fault that I'm not good at humility. My father was a attorney and you had to argue your side. <clears throat> right. And I also grew up in, as many of us have grown up where it, you, we grew up in culture, a culture where we're reinforced and rewarded for being right and for having the mm-hmm. right answer. And we, you know, we learn that we can experientially avoid Mm. by being right. If you keep talking over someone, then you don't have to feel their pain, right? So it's, it's like, it's like this little baby bird skill that I'm like, you know, I need to work on. Like, honestly, I really need to work, (laughs) I really need to work on it. And so here we go. That's my practice.
1: Mm. Yeah. And what, it really helps just not seeing the world in terms of capital R and capital W right and wrong and just letting letting ourselves rest in a place where multiple things can be right and so even when you feel like you're right someone else can also be right and making space for all that but yeah I'm i I agree with that especially there's just we all reinforce it with each other too like even in the field like all therapists want to act like we all know what we're talking about, about everything. And there's so much to know. We can't possibly know everything. And, uh, but there's this, there's this pressure to act like we have it all figured out sometimes and know everything.
0: Yeah. You know, I, and I, and I think we we're also just in this thing where we have more access to information than we've ever had. And so we are chronically hungry for more information. And that's why, you know, for me, just like going back to the roots of okay, Thich Nhat Hanh, loving awareness. Like I just need to simplify things. It's sort of like when you're cooking, what what was that book about like acid, salt, fat, or whatever?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: You, know, if you get those ingredients pretty much going on, and your recipe will be pretty decent, right? But we get into these complex recipes that we need to feel like at least okay, I will speak for myself where I feel like I need to keep learning more and more. And because I underneath that, what's the drive is that is, I feel like I don't know enough. And what's underneath that is I feel like I am not enough. Mm. So the solve for that for me is actually to stop doing that emotional avoidance cycle that will lead me into more and more of that cycle and actually do some practices of enoughness while also being humble, like bowing to the part of me that gets hooked. Mm. And she's going to keep on getting hooked because it's not her fault. Because she was mm. told that this is what you need to do to be liked in the world. Mm. And, and I, you know, of course, we all want, we, you know, sort of that yearning to be liked is, is mm. common amongst all of us.
1: Yeah, that resonates. <laughs> yeah, it's like a yeah, it's like a it's a blessing and a curse. You know, it makes things it makes things happen. It gives you movement. It gets you to talk to cool people like you. But without some awareness of or some balance of the appreciation and the pulling yourself back and not making it about just you, uh, it can yeah, it can be used to create richness and meaning, but without like some intention, it can end up hollow.
0: So I have a question for you, Mike, My- Michael Thomas. I don't know why I called you Michael. Maybe you can That's be Michael. I-, I have a question for you, Thomas. Um, where, where does this, this humility thing show up for you? Like where, where is it hard for you?
1: Hmm. I think like I was saying, I think it's, um, like interpersonal relationships, I think there's a like a, a very deep thing in me going back of just wanting to be right, you know, or be blind to how someone else could also be right. And so I have to, I have to constantly catch that and get over this hurdle of it being really uncomfortable to say, I'm sorry, and to own up to things. And it's a continuous practice for me.
0: Okay. I want to go one layer the onion deeper so yeah. this like this need to be right and what's what's underneath that for you like do you have like a memory or a feeling state or what's underneath the if i'm not right what will happen
1: now we're sort of touching some territory that's hard for me with this being recorded because mm-hmm. i don't think i've if we were just talking as friends i'd really i'd, I'd let you in but mm-hmm. i don't think i've fully and this is maybe something you can talk about and share your experience. I don't think I've really figured out how to navigate opening up in a public space. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily for my own like guilt or shame, but for like other people, you know?
0: Say more about that.
1: Just we are not just, we don't exist in silos, right? Like we exist in an environment that includes people in our lives and people who have been in our lives. And so once you, once I start talking about personal things, it automatically implicates other people. And I get Mm -hmm. sort of uncomfortable with bringing other people into a public space without their consent.
0: Okay. So there's something about like, if I were to talk about the, the part of me that is up against this being right or wrong, I may have to like talk about someone else that participated yes. in that belief system and built that belief yes. system being built for me. And I, and I don't, I don't feel that they've consented to that. Like yeah. that's their story. They they like, even if you consent to telling the story, they haven't consented to that story, which I think is a really important thing to consider. And I also wonder if there's a way to do it without having to implicate another person, but talk from your own experience, you know, yeah. because, going back to common humanity, I think most people would sort of relate to what you're saying around that feeling of needing to be right. Mm.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess it's something I haven't had to think about too much because I normally, this is probably the most I've ever talked on a podcast for better or for worse. I usually just put it much more on the other person and But we've been very uh, back and forth, which I hope is okay for today. Um, I prefer. But I usually don't have to come into these spaces disclosing too much. So I haven't really had to think through how I want to deal with the moment we just had when we got close to something and fear shows up in me. I haven't Mm -hmm. had to really think about how to approach those situations. So thanks for giving me that opportunity to really um, become aware of that.
0: It's sort of a mirror that happens in therapy too, right? Like, cause it's, cause therapy is, you know, you have like the interview and the interviewer and the interview, the person that's being interviewed is sharing a lot more than the interviewer In therapy, the person, the client. And so it, it's, it's a different type of transaction. It's a different kind of relationship, but people are listening to this Thomas, because they care about you. <laughs> they care about who you're choosing. They care about your voice. They care about your perspective. You
1: know, um, yeah, I don't, I don't really ever think about it that way. And I think that's my own sort of like lack of wanting to see myself, I don't know, like acknowledge certain Things about myself, it's much easier to rest in a place that the people who listen, it's just kind of like random or it's because I'm an imposter or whatever those classic things are. But I guess you're right. It's like there has to be a component that people are listening because of me. But I tend not to acknowledge that out yeah. of my own discomfort.
0: And it's a, it's a tricky spot because how do you let yourself go into that? And I would say the people for the people that are listening, they can relate to this in their own lives. Like, how do you step into using your voice or being a leader. I think that we need a lot of leaders. We we need everyone to be a leader, right? Um, How do you do that in a way that isn't driven by ego and isn't driven by like, I just want to hear myself talk, but is actually driven by like, this is, this is to help somebody. And we want to hear you, Hmm. your unique, thing that you have to say, just like the hummingbird. Like, I want to hear that hummingbird. It's not bothering me. It's actually, I kind of want to listen to it because there's something mm-hmm. here that it's, you know, um, and when people click on this, they're clicking on it because there's something from you that is fitting for them.
1: Yeah. And it's kind of becoming more clear in this conversation is I think that almost probably involves just as much ego, but in the opposite way of like wanting to hear myself talk, I think there's some like avoidance of talking. And so, and it's, and it's easy to mask that by just asking a lot of questions and being, you know, asking good questions and reflecting a lot and holding space. Um, But probably worth looking at more.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, whatever sport my kids are on is like the metaphor of the day for me. And right now they're playing basketball. And when you watch, you know, kids, basketball, little kids, basketball, there's the kids that are the ball hogs, (laughs) you know, like they don't see anyone else on the team and they just want to, you know, take the ball down and shoot it. Right. And they don't recognize that this is a team sport. It would help you out to pass the ball once in a while. And then there's kids (laughs) that are like my, my kid, The the ball is like a hot potato. Like as soon as he as soon as he gets it, he's like, get rid of this thing, because I'd have to do something with it, you know, Mm. or I'd have to like dribble, or I'd have to pause with it, and and, you know, and and sort of take some some ownership of it. And it's so uncomfortable, right? So in some ways, you you lean towards more the ball passer, um, the hot potato, and 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 whichever side you're on. I mean, if you think about this, like in a um, one of the. community agreements at Inside LA, which is a place that I teach and I recommend people go check out. It's a phenomenal um, place for contemplative practice and community. But one of the, the community agreements is the sort of step up, step down agreement, which is if you tend to be the person that always talks or always raises your hand or is always you know, dominating, in this space, can you practice stepping back? And if you're the person that is always quiet and always, you know, sitting on the sidelines and always observing in this space, can you practice stepping forward, step up, step back or step up, step down or whatever. And then we get a little bit more of an even, even playing field where we're passing Mm -hmm. the ball and we're taking shots too, you know, like it's, it's, and that's actually, if you look at good basketball, which I watch way too much of these days, um, (laughs) that's what they're doing. That's what the good ball players do.
1: I really like that. That's a great practice for all different types of settings, right? Work meetings and college cl- and classes. I like that. That should be a practice more because there's always this weird dynamic of just knowing who are the... And it's funny because in other contexts, I'm probably the person who talks too much in consultations or in college classes when I look back at my master's. So it's I'm going to have to unpack this afterwards. You're making me think. But But yeah, I think that could be a really useful practice in a lot of settings. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to be mindful of time and that kind of that flew by, especially that second half, I think, because I really dropped into a very like not that the first half wasn't authentic for me, but like it started to touch some more things. And so that past half hour just went by very quickly. So I appreciate you being here with me today.
0: Thank you, Thomas. I liked hearing more of your voice and I hope that I continue to hear more of you as I listen in to your
1: podcast. Oh, thanks. And appreciate that, honestly. And would you want to share a little bit about new things you have going on in your podcast, how people can connect with you?
0: Yeah. You know, I'm kind of thinking about lots of different ways to reach people. So there's the Your Life in Process podcast, which has just been kind of fun and creative and a way to apply some of these processes to your daily life. Um, on my website, I have a lot of places that you can find me. I'm teaching at inside LA throughout the year. Um, I have, I'm on insight timer now, so oh. I'm uploading some meditations there. I think it's just a good community. And, um, those are sort of my people like insight timer folks. <laughs> uh, and then if you're a clinician, I'm teaching through, um, Praxis and PESI and, um, Taking people to Costa Rica in April, you want to come with me. Um, So going to Blue Spirit. I'll probably be doing that um, hopefully annually of taking folks on psychological flexibility journeys in Costa Rica.
1: Wow, that's so cool. What an experience. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you so much again. Honestly, this means a lot.
0: Thank you so much. Take care.
1: It's got me out of my mind. It's got me seeing trees breathe. It's got me learning how heaven and hell are both inside of me. It's got me feeling the love that I bottled so deep When the entire world kept feeding on my greed.